You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Reed Goosens to talk about how international investors can get into the US real estate market. Reed, who is originally from Australia, moved to the US in 2012 and started investing in real estate. He is the co founder of Wildhorn Capital, which primarily invests in multifamily properties in the Austin, Texas, and San Antonio, Texas areas. In just eight years and being new to the US, Reed's company has accumulated over 1,800 units. As an international investor, Reed brings a great perspective on investing in U.S. markets and tips on how to achieve success in this space. Reed's story is incredibly interesting, and I know it'll be helpful for our international audience, as well as our audience based in the U.S. Similar to last week's episode with Matt Faircloth, this week's episode was recorded live, in person, between Reed and I at a podcasting conference called PodMax rather than in our normal recording setting, and it was recorded just before COVID-19 hit. So you may notice a bit of a difference in the audio, and the episode is a bit more conversational than normal. Please excuse the slight change in the audio and enjoy the awesome strategies and information I picked up from Reed while at this great event. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have Reed Goosens. Welcome to the show, Reed. G'day, Robert. Thanks for having me, Mike. Let's start today's episode by talking about your story. Walk us through how you got from Australia to where you are today. Yeah, sure. Well, let's maybe give a little bit of a shout out to PodMax, eh? We are coming to you from Trenton, New Jersey. I've just made the pilgrimage down from New York City. I live in Los Angeles, California, but I came out for a weekend with a couple of buddies actually in New York and I interviewed Eric a few weeks ago. He's like, come to this PodMax event, man. And I was like, okay, let's do it. And so we got hooked up and it's awesome to meet you here. And we're sitting in a little studio at what the Hive in downtown Trenton. So pretty cool. But yeah, to the story, for those people who can't tell, I'm from got a very deep Southern accent by, by West Texas. Yeah, originally from Australia. And my whole story, my whole shtick is that I moved to the United States in 2012. I quit my job in Australia. My background's in structural engineering. And I moved here with just a whim and a hope to give it a crack, as I say. Seven years later, I've achieved financial freedom and I currently am a co-founder of Wildhorn Capital. We have 1,800 units, about a quarter billion under management in multifamily space, all in Austin, Texas and San Antonio. And I have also got a podcast myself called Investing in the US, which has been going for four and a half years. And my whole thing is if I can come to the United States, my superpower is, that my, is my international perspective, right? And I'll hopefully today on the show, we can talk a little bit about what makes the United States such a fertile ground for investing and to achieve financial freedom. And so- my whole shtick is that if I can come to the United States and achieve financial freedom, then so can the average American. And, and we've got visa issues in there and all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of barriers to entry for me to get here, but I made it happen. And you know, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but try to inspire people to get off the fence and, and give it a go. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely a big shout out to PodMax. Like you said, we're here live. I'm down from Boston, so I had a bit of a commute really? here as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm excited to be here doing this live with you. And we recently had... Diego Corzo on the show. He also immigrated. I forget which country he's from, but somewhere in Latin America. And mm-hmm. he had a similar story and he was able to overcome a lot of stuff yep. and become successful in real estate as well. So before we dive into what you're doing here in the US, I want to talk about the perspective of international real estate. We have sure. a lot of people that listen to the show that always ask me, 
is your content applicable outside the US? I'm not from outside the US. Yeah. I've never invested outside the US, so I don't know really what to tell them. So having invested in the US as well as being from outside, what are the differences and do a lot of what we talk about in the US in terms of real estate apply anywhere outside the US? The short answer to the overall investing perspective is yes. There's real estate everywhere, right? The whole reason we invest in real estate is because you can have real estate in Australia and Antarctica, on the North Pole, the South Pole. You can have it everywhere. People need somewhere to live. So yes, there is ways to get deals done. Specifically to Australia, and I'll, maybe I'll talk a little bit more about that. People ask me, how do you make money in Australia? And I'm like, well, I actually don't know because I've never invested in Australia. I've only invested here in the United States. But what I can tell you is the difference, right? So Australia and America, exclude Alaska, but Australia and America landmass wise are roughly the same pure mass of land. However, we only have 25 million people in Australia because we can only inhabit about 18% of our land because the rest of it's a desert, right? Compare that to America, where you have 350 million people and you can do east coast to west coast, north to south. You have these coastal markets like Boston, where you're from, New York and California. But then you've got all these interior markets, which are what we call secondary markets. Just compare those two for a second. For the sheer volume of population, we're not even one-tenth. Now, what does that mean? Well, we have a supply and demand issue in Australia, massive supply and demand issue. So think of the Australian market like in LA, New York, San Francisco, Boston, all over the country, right? All, all over the major markets. We have a lot of people who want to live there, but they're all constrained around major cities. With a lower population, we also have only four major banks. So with four major banks, we don't have the debt financing vehicles like you do here in America. And what do I mean by that? Well, there's no multifamily in Australia. Like literally, you can't go and find a garden style multifamily apartment in Australia. The reason is because in Aussie, because there's only four banks, low population, they only borrow to build to sell. So a condo market, right? They don't borrow to build to rent like here in the United States. So when I first moved here and I saw this incredible opportunity to buy multifamily, I didn't even really understand what it was. We have apartments in Australia, but it's all condos, right? And coupled with that was the whole debt. What sort of debt? You can get Freddie Fannie Mae debt with you know, interest only for 10 years and amortized over 30. Non-recourse, it blew me away. Like I was like, holy crap. But the whole perspective is that we don't even have multifamily in Australia. And the reason is because of the population. And the reason is the lack of financing debt vehicles. Think of America like, say they have a thousand different debt arms that you can go and lend from. In Australia, there's like four or five. So the commercial real estate space here in the United States is, in my opinion, the number one space, not just in multifamily, but all commercial in the Western world for yield and appreciation. I was just at the best ever conference last week, and there was a, a doctor on stage from Denver Tech University, I think it was, talking about office buildings, right? And cap rates and how comparing that to other Western worlds. Well, in Australia, we've had historically low cap rates for decades, right? We've had you compare New York City or LA, we have where there's a high demand, low supply. Well, I know in Singapore and London, like you're talking cap rates in the 1% to 3%, right? And when someone from Singapore or London or Australia sees an office building trading for in Boston or LA for a 4%, it's like, wow, I'm coming from a country which only has 2% cap rates. The reason a lot of international investments come to the United States is for the yield, but also for the affordability compared to where they're from in their home country. There's so much in there that I found interesting and that I want to talk about. And I guess the first thing is the debt financing. And then the second thing I want to talk about is how our cap rates here, even though they might seem low, is actually high for international investors. And I think that's so interesting because you see a lot of investors today that think the market's maybe not overvalued, but 
hot. It's frothy. It's hot, right? It's, it's frothy. Hot. It, yeah. it, it, there is, yeah. And so for us, we're used to say six, seven, eight caps. And when mm-hmm. things are starting to get closer to five, six cap, you're starting to say, oh, this isn't as attractive. And you still see people buying deals and you can't understand why. You go and bid on a deal and you're like, these numbers just don't make sense for us. So how is somebody else going to buy this deal, right? But like you said, international people, whether it be Australia or even Canada, a lot of people come down yep. from Canada and do the or same Mexico, thing. Or Mexico, Latin America. Or, there's, yeah, exactly. there's, a, there's a lot. Of, here's the other thing that a lot of people don't talk about. I'm getting a little bit technical right now. I interviewed a gentleman on my show recently, and he was in a British expat living in Colombia, but investing in the United States. You don't know this, but when someone opens a bank account in Australia, most Western worlds, there's one question that the United States IRS has on every single bank account form in the Western world. So you're in France, you're in London, you're in Scotland, wherever you are, and you open a bank account, and it's like, are you a US citizen? And this is a whole thing that the US tracks where their citizens are and where their money is. And so the United States asked the rest of the world to say, can you please provide us this data? On the conversely, everyone's like, well, this is great. Now we can find our own residents in America. Hey, America, can you send us that information back? And they said, no. And so what it essentially did was create like an offshore privacy account. So if you're an international investor opening an LLC here in the United States, there's a lot of privacy around who you are. And thus, international investors view the United States as nearly offshore in terms of getting their money out of the country of wherever they're from. So I add that because combined with the yield, combined with the great debt, combined with all the other stuff we talk about, is also the privacy laws about in and around entity structures here in the United States, which Obama brought in and essentially, I th- correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Obama brought it in, but he was essentially the one that said when they, everyone asked, hey, can you send us that information back? They said no. And so you've got to add that perspective to it as well of why people are coming to the United States. There's a whole myriad of, of issues that I've just described there, but that's why things are frothy. That's why people are paying a four cap when you think historically it's been a six cap. So that's another layer we can get into as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've heard of the debt obviously being mm-hmm. better here and then some of the rates here being higher than in other countries, but I hadn't heard the privacy thing. So that's really interesting. And so going back to the debt, I think that's the most common thing that I've heard from international investors. And really all that I know is from people that listen to the show and I connect with them, whether it be on social media or just through the podcast, they send in emails and I talk to them about international investing. That's the biggest thing that I hear is we just don't have that debt here. Yep. You know, In the US, you can get low rate, 30-year fixed debt and a lot on of countries. commercial debt, that yeah, is. We're not on even on talk- a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you can't get that in other countries in most parts. And so- I hear that that's probably like the biggest barrier when it comes to investing in real estate outside the US. And it's, it's on a barrier outside the US. You get it done. There's, like, there's hotels, there's office buildings, there's industrial parks and all different. If we're from in Australia, there's all that stuff and more. We just don't have multifamily. So you can still make money in other countries. You just got to know how those local countries evaluate the debt and how that affects the cap rate, right? The biggest thing that I can say to everyone is when you're buying real estate and you're looking for cash flow, you want to spread between what your interest rates are and what the local market cap rate is. Historically, we have been seeing cap rates at 5 6 7%. We're interest rates at 4 and 5%. So there's a gap there of 200, 300 basis points makes cash flow. You can still apply, as long as you've still got that slight bit of spread. Today, we're saying, oh, it's a 5 cap, but you can still get interest rates. It's 3.5%. There's, <laughs> there's a spread there, right? So you can still make cash flow. And if you're going in with a value-add project, you can increase that, that cap rate and thus the spread and thus the cash flow. So wherever you're investing around the world, make sure you understand what the interest rate is on the debt and understand what the in-place market cap rate is. And as long as there's a spread and you're inverse, which means your, cap, your market cap rates are five, your interest rates are five and your market cap rates are four, that's, oh, sorry, other way around, but that's, you know what I'm trying to say. Like you don't want to be inverse of that and make sure you can get the cash flow to work in your favor. 
and again, I don't know about international markets, but we have hard money lenders here. We have private money lenders. We have credit unions. We have banks. We have big commercial banks. I mean, we have so many different institutions that can lend us money. I don't think that international countries have that option. So. They do have it to an extent, but also with the dot franc era, 2009 came around, everyone got slapped over the wrists and had to sort of get in line with a little bit more regulatory lending, right? And I, I think it was good. Like the Americans made the mistake and it caused everyone to freaking have a meltdown. I think some of the dot franc stuff is really good in terms of just being more aligned with understanding, you know, you got to have a, you can't just have a pulse and get a loan. You need to put skin in the game. You need to have some collateral in the deal so you don't just walk away from these sort of things. And I think that's what's been relatively good in the last 10 years since the downturn is people have learned their mistakes and are not trying to over leverage into real estate. And thus the borrower has no skin in the game and they, you're not just going to walk away because you still have that 20, 30% down. This international piece is so interesting. And I could probably talk about this for hours, but let's bring it back to the US and sure. talk about what you're doing here. So Tell us a little bit about your portfolio now, what you're doing today, and then let's walk it back to when you first came into the US, how you got started. My business partner, Andrew Campbell, and myself, we head up Wildhorn Capital. We're investing in Austin and San Antonio. We have 1,800 units to about a quarter billion under management, and we've been investing since 2015. And really, it's just, I started way back in the day in buying a triplex in upstate New York. And so- I'm sure we can talk a little bit about that and how it's so much different to compared to where I'm from in Australia. Yeah, let's talk about that first deal. Was that your first deal, the triplex? Yeah, the triplex. So moving to America, moved to New York City, got a job, right? And then once I got a job, I was at my first REAR event, Real Estate Investment Association. And for those people listening to this show, you've got to realize America has such an awesome tapestry of education events. You know, we're sitting here at the PodMax, but we're also, you know, with the REAR events and all that sort of stuff. Get to those things because in Australia, we don't have those things. We don't have the plentiful that you have here in the United States. So when I first moved to New York, I was within two weeks, I was at the first New York REAR event and I had to learn, like change my investing lingo about how to invest here in the United States. Subsequently from that, I realized, oh my gosh, the barriers to entry is so much lower here. And I found market in upstate New York. I could drive there within four hours. I used to get the Greyhound bus. It was Syracuse, New York. And I, as a fresh-faced Australian who had never really understand what a ghetto is, I bought my first property for 38000 bucks for a triplex. And on paper, it was great, right? It all looks great. And it was great for about six months until we had a drive-by shooting. I learned the value of maybe you can make money in Section 8 housing, but when you're only invested in one deal, it makes it really hard to, if half the units, which was a triplex, so two out of the three units sit vacant for a little while, your cash flow is lower. And so looking back on it, the numbers are too good to be true, but I learned, right? And the whole message that I want to tell your listeners is that it got me started, right? I remember sitting on the train, nose in a book, on the New York subway system, going to work, reading about how to make cash flow in the United States. And I was like, I had analysis paralysis, right? And remember, I picked up the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad in beginning of 2010. This was mid-2012. So it was two and a half years of self-education through Australia, through some parts here in the United States, I just had to get going, right? You don't get to deal number 10 without doing deal number one. And that was really the whole impetus of getting my first deal done. And I didn't lose my shirt on it, but I had some really good learning curves along the way. I talk about that all the time because I think a lot of new investors, when they're just getting started, they see those numbers. Those are the numbers of D-class areas. And then you get in there, those are the numbers on paper. If everything goes perfect, yeah, you could get that return. But when you take into consideration all the repairs, the maintenance that you're actually going to have, the vacancy that you'll probably have, all of the things that come with a D-class property, the return numbers aren't always as good as they seem on paper. So 
I do talk about that a lot here on the show. When you see a really good return like that, like a cap rate of a 12 or whatever on a duplex or a triplex, you have to understand that's a risk-adjusted return. The reason it's so good is because you're not in an area that is desirable. I spoke about supply and demand before. When you have high demand and low supply, you have a lower cap rate, hence New York City, hence Boston, hence LA, hence San Francisco. When you have a low demand but a high supply, you're going to have a higher cap rate, right? So the risk is more adjusted. So hence why you think on paper, wow, this is a 12 cap, but you've got to understand, well, maybe it's not on the path of progress. Maybe people don't actually want to live there because if people don't want to live there, why are you investing there? <laughs> so, you know, and people get too caught up on making money now. Real estate is a slow and steady wins the race. I come from a country where if you double your money in 10 years, you're doing pretty freaking well. Here in the United States, since the last recession, everyone's like doubled, tripled their money in three to five years. And they think that's the norm. I'm here to tell you guys, the next 10 years is going to be so much different to the last 10 years. And you need to adjust your expectations. Real estate is a long-term play. And if you sit on your real estate for 5, 10, 15 years, you're going to do just fine. Doesn't mean out of the gate it's going to be great, but it will get there eventually. And so many people are focused on that immediate out of the gate. I tell people these days, like if you want true cash flow out of the gate, go buy a business. Real estate is going to be, you might come with very low cash flow out of the gate, and it might take a number of years to get to a point where you're really happy with a five, six, seven percent cash on cash return. So I just say that because so many people are focused on the immediate and not building up to something to have a real true investment that's going to put money in their pocket. Yeah, to your point about the 12% cap rate, if I'm analyzing a deal and I see numbers like that, I always go back and double check and I say, what am I missing? Right. This is too good to be true, right, like right, you right, said. Right. So I always talk about that here on the show. I say, if you're running a deal and you see those numbers like that, go back and look into that deal because there might be something that's too good to be true. And I don't think markets are fully efficient, but if the numbers are really that good, somebody probably would have bought in the deal already. So think about that. And then about the long-term perspective, I couldn't agree more. And I recommend that here again on the show all the time because what we talk about will get you to success. It will get you to wealth, but it's not going to happen overnight. And I think if you look on social media, just across the internet, there's a lot of people that promise you'll be a millionaire in 12 months. We'll teach you to be a millionaire. You will get wealthy with what we're talking about, but it's not going to be in 12 months. It's going to be 10 years. So put this in perspective. Picked up the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad in 2009. I left my corporate job in 2017. So that is eight years before financial freedom came around. And financial freedom, you know, I, don't, I have time flexibility, right? I now work for myself. I don't work for someone else. It took eight years, right? It's your journey. It takes time. Things take time. Things that are worth building take time, right? And people who are out there spruiking, oh, 12 months financial freedom, don't buy into that crap. They are salesmen. To do this game effectively, particularly in this market today, right? We've had so much froth for the last five, six years. You have to be diligent and you have to understand that it's okay that it might take seven years. It's okay. It might take 10 years. It's a journey. It's about climbing that mountain and enjoying the journey along the way. It's not about getting there immediately and going, oh my gosh, what the hell's next? So take it from me, guys. It will take time and that's okay. It's okay to take time. It doesn't happen overnight. I think that's the hardest part about everything that we're teaching people. But I'm sure you probably have a similar thing on your podcast with your book and all your audience is that people want it quick. You know, yeah. We live in an instant gratification world. Exactly. Not even just social media, but Grubhub or Uber Eats. You can get food to your house right. in, in an hour right. or Amazon. Mm-hmm. If you're in New York City, you can have it to your house in a couple hours, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, It's kind of crazy. And so we live in that world of instant gratification. It doesn't matter if you're going into investments or business. It all translates there and people want that. Yep. So and, that's and the it, biggest thing. And that's something that like as a business owner now, like being a CEO and my own leader of my own business is like, I have to practice 
a bit more mindfulness and self-awareness to understand, to keep me in check that I need to enjoy time today. I need to enjoy the journey because it's not about the mountaintops we scale to, right? You know, and Tony Robbins talks about you overestimate what you can achieve in a year, but you underestimate what you can achieve in a decade. Again, I picked up the book Rich Dad Put out in 2009. I'm now sitting here about a decade later talking to you on a podcast in Trenton, New Jersey about the journey. I had no freaking idea that when I would move to the United States, I would be sitting here talking to you. All I wanted to do was come to the United States and be an expat, right? But what the thing was is that I backed myself and I hustled. There's a lot of hard work in there, guys. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of freaking hard work. But what I'm saying is that I had no idea I'd be sitting here talking about 1,800 units and quarter billion under management at all. I had no idea. Which also means on the flip side that I know the next 10 years is going to be freaking awesome, right? And it's not about planning 10 years from now. It's not about putting these goals out there. Well, you know, there can be targets. It's about working hard now, seeing what doors open and walk through those doors. It's hard work and patience. And yep. one of my favorite people to follow, and he can be vulgar at times, is Andy Frisella. I absolutely love the guy. And he talks about this concept of aggressive patience. You have to be patient, but you have to be aggressive in pursuing that. Sure. You don't just sit there and do nothing while you're being patient. You still work hard and put in the aggressiveness, but you're being patient and understanding it's going to take time. People don't understand how much hard work it does take to build something from nothing. I'll say it again. People don't understand how much it takes to build something from nothing. Literally, it takes you're like a rice burner. You're putting all this energy in it and you're going one millimeter. <laughs> putting all this energy in, you're going another millimeter. Like, and you think it's not going to work. But if you keep being consistent at it and showing up every single day and making sure that you are putting in the hard work, you are putting in the grind, it will pay off eventually. And there's that meme where that person's digging to the gold and he gives up too quickly. It's about if you set yourself up to know that you're rocking up every day, you're showing up every day in terms of your job, your wife, girlfriends, your, your boyfriends, whatever, your family. And you're making sure that's being satisfied. You're putting a roof over your head you know, through a day job. And then on the weekends or whatever, or in your spare time, you're hustling to try and get this side hustle to work. That's okay. That's your journey, right? You're going to work hard at it, but it might take time to get there, five, six, seven, 10 years. That's okay. But to your point about being aggressive in the pursuit of your goals, but also having patience and persistence is the most important thing. And you can't be bouncing from one thing to the other, no. right? People will come in and they'll do real estate for three months oh, and gosh. say it's not going to work. And yep. then they'll go to a side business, drop shipping, say, and they'll yep. do that for three months yep. and they'll start to get a little bit of traction, but it's not as fast as they want. So then they give up mm-hmm. and then they go to something else. And if you do that in real estate, it's never going to work. What we're talking about is here is guys of mindset, right? We're talking about mindset. And I had people judge me at the beginning. What are you doing, Re? You know, like go back to your job and blah, blah, blah. And I was still working, but I'm sure a lot of people listening to this show have those same sort of chatter in their head and also external chatter from their family, from their friends who don't realize that what you're trying to build, right? And it's having that absolute resolve that you can do this and you can back yourself because the biggest thing we need to learn as human beings is to learn how to back ourselves. You know, the whole thing about me coming to the United States, I said, frick, I don't know what's going to happen. The worst case scenario is I, I don't make it in the United States and I move back to Australia and get another engineering job. That's the worst case scenario. And I was willing to do that, right? Because I was willing to back myself. And the biggest thing for me that makes me drive is the fear of regret, right? Waking up when I'm 70 years of age and going, geez, I wish I'd given that a go, right? And not given up, right? So it's all about mindset. It's all about who you surround yourself with. It's all about knowing that you can back yourself and you can make a bet on yourself in order to achieve your goals. Yeah. And I I forget where I heard this from. Someone on another podcast had said, your worst case scenario is everybody else's normal day, right? right? Everybody goes to an engineering job 
and that's their normal day. And your worst case scenario is just going back to what normal people do on an everyday basis. And that means a lot to me. And like you said, it's a mindset thing. Not everybody's going to understand or know that you're doing this for the long term. So, exactly. so important. I could talk about the mindset, the patience, all of this, but goes into real estate for, like I said, a couple hours. But let's dive back into tactical. Sure. You came to the US, bought that multifamily property in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming you had no credit history in the US. Yes. Well, it's a funny story, but keep going. So I'm assuming you had no credit. You might have had some money, but how did you purchase this? Was it all cash? What was the tactical advice? Because a lot of people listening to the show are new investors. They either have limited credit, no credit, maybe not as much capital. So how did you get started? So the word credit, I had no idea what credit was. <laughs> in Australia, we don't have a credit score like you do here in the United States, 700, 600, whatever it is. I had saved up my own money. I, don't, I come from a blue collar upbringing. My parents are both high school teachers. So the money I did come to the United States with was about $40,000 and I'd save that being an engineer. So I used that to buy that first property for $38,000. But what I did was to build that credit really quickly, it was I went to a local bank and it was called First Niagara Bank up in upstate New York. I don't know if they're even around anymore, but I made a, I made a relationship with the local bank manager and started depositing rental checks into an account. And over a period of six months, he could see that, okay, I bought this property all cash, did a bit of renos to it, that this was working. And so he gave me a line of credit, I think it was $30,000, and I was able to buy deal number two. And from that, I was able to slowly put the building blocks on top of one another. Now, not everyone just has $30,000, $40,000 laying around. I worked to save that. And that's what you know the Grant Cardones of the world, that you save money in order to invest. And that's what I did, right? And so that barrier to entry I spoke about earlier about getting involved in a class D property was all I could afford. I could only afford a $38,000 property that's where I was going to get started, right? I wanted to be in control. Yes, did I learn things along the way? Yes, I did. But it was my own money that I put up at risk that I was willing to bet on. And if I lost it all, eh, it was my money, right? It would have got me started. So that was the big thing. Building credit quickly was important, but buying it all cash was the, how I got started. So if someone listening to the show today is thinking about how they can come up with the capital for their own deal, and they're considering raising money from someone else, if it's their first deal, do you think that's a good idea? Or should they maybe just wait till they can save up their own money and buy their own uh, deal? Look, I think there's never a good time to get started, right? There's always, oh, I wish I did this 20 years ago. So you got to get started somewhere. If you find a cracking deal, and cracking means great deal, if you find a cracking deal and you can put the equity, you can raise some money from friends and family, the biggest limitation people think is, oh, lack of experience. Well, when that conversation comes up, you can say, hey, yes, I do have lack of experience, but this is my first deal. It's going to get my undivided attention compared to someone else who maybe has done 10 or 12 deals and they don't get as much attention on that deal. So there is ways around talking to investors about a first deal. I think you need to get a mentor. I think that's the most important thing. If you can invest in a mentorship in order to have someone looking over your shoulder. So if you do go do your first deal and you need to raise outside capital, you make sure you're doing the right thing. I think that's very important, but it can be done and anything can be done. So I'm sitting here today telling you, yes, you can do it. Yes, you can raise money for your first deal. Make sure you have the right people around you in order to make it short successful. Just because you can do it, does that mean you should? Well, in my personal opinion, you're challenging the status quo, right? You're challenging, well, no, everyone's not telling me about like, you know, I'm not doing, I've got to do these steps before I get to step number 10. I threw all that out the window. I, I didn't even have a mentor when I went and did my first deal. I remember buying my flip project I spoke about uh, a little bit earlier in Philadelphia and I brought my dad and my uncle, he brought money to the table, my first outside investors. That deal went sideways and I lost money, didn't lose my shirt, but I made sure my investors were made whole. So did I do the right thing by my investors? Yes. Did I make sure all my 
boxes were ticked in terms of trying to reduce the mitigate the risk, yet things still went wrong. So back to your question, I think anything is possible as long as you've got the mindset and as long as you've got the willpower to go out and do it. And again, backing yourself. And the reason I asked that question was because I personally believe you shouldn't raise capital for your first deal, whether it be real estate or anything, really. I don't think you should raise money. And this is just my personal opinion. Some people have been very successful doing it, but I don't think you should raise money for the first thing you're ever doing for sure. anything. I agree. I did a couple rentals in my area, the Boston area where I live. And then I went long distance. And my first property, when I went long distance, people had seen that I had some success where I live. And they said, here, I'll give you some money to go invest there. And I said, no, thank you. This is my first time investing out of state. I did not want to take their money to do that. And then I haven't done any flips, but when I do my first flip, I will not take somebody else's money to do that. It's my first time. I don't want to put somebody else's risk. And you make a very good point. I think that is exactly correct. If you do just continue saving and to get that first deal done, it is really important that that means it's your money, right? The other thing with saving money is that you've set a goal out that I want to save X amount of money to go and buy a deal by the end of the year. And then you can get that deal done. You can put your toe in the water. You can see how it goes and thus build that confidence in yourself to say, hey, I know how this is going to happen. And then I can maybe bring on a capital for the second, third, fourth, fifth deal. But I do agree with you that when you're getting started out, I'd invest in a mentor, surround yourself with people and try and do your first deal on your own. I think that's probably the three big takeaways. If you take capital from someone and then it doesn't go right and your reputation gets hurt, it's just not worth it for me because in real estate, probably one of the biggest things I've learned talking to people like yourself, just studying, reputation is everything in real estate. It's a a relationship business. And if your reputation gets tarnished early on in your career, it's going to be hard to overcome that. So my number one focus, keeping my reputation intact. And if that means I can't do a deal because I can't bring in outside capital, then that's fine. Well, you know, I spoke about the, the flip deal. I reached into my own pocket to make sure my investors got, not that they didn't lose their money, but make sure that I promised them a return and I gave them the return, but I had to dip deep into my own pocket. And this is when I was working full-time. I was working for a ground-up developer. And so I did the right thing by my investors, even when things go wrong. And I think that is the most important thing to remember. Things will go wrong. Things happen. You know, you underwrite a deal, it looks great on a spreadsheet. In reality, it might go wrong, it might go sideways. And that's okay. But as long as you're transparent with your investors and you are willing to dip into your own pocket to make sure they've either made whole or they got their, all their money back or you promised to pay all their money back. The thing with having a, bit of, a few of those hiccups along the way in the beginning is that it makes you a better investor moving forward. Those mistakes you do make on the front end, and we all make mistakes, will help you be a better investor in the long term and more people want to invest with you. Because the other thing is, you know, the story is like, oh, my dad, my uncle, whole plus I gave them money and a return back. They said, wow, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Even though we know how bad the deal went. It's like, yeah, no, you're welcome because I promised you this return and I, I was going to reach into my own pocket to make sure you guys were happy with the service I provided. I had to go back and look at what I did wrong and then make sure I've learned from those mistakes in terms of taking to the next deal and the third deal and the fifth deal and the sixth deal and now deal number 12. Yeah, that is so, so important. If you do take on capital, you need to make sure that your investors get made whole or taken care of in the way that you promised. And even if that means taking money out of your pocket like you had to do, that amount of money that's out of your pocket is not worth as much as the reputation that exactly. you would have lost if you didn't make them whole. So I think the relationship is so important. So 100%. I think so awesome that you did that. And they were aware of how bad the deal went? Yeah, to an extent. And it wasn't necessarily how bad the deal went. With flipping, it took longer. Right? We thought it'd take eight months. It ended up taking 18 months. And that just burnt into our interest and all that sort of stuff. But it sold really quickly. And our ARV on the back end wasn't as high as cost us more to get what we thought to get it done. And we had a bad contractor and so all those sort of things. But we got it done at the end. We grinded. We got the city on board. A lot of mistakes that the GC did, but we made sure we got it over line and, and we got it sold. Now, let's go back to your deal in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. You went Section 8 with that, right? 
Yeah, I learned Section 8 very quickly. <laughs> yeah. So, so talk to us a bit about that. I think some people might want to go Section 8. So tell us a bit about what that process was like, what you liked about it, what you didn't like about it, if you continue to do it after. No. So I, well, I did for the second deal. But what I found out was that, yeah, Section 8 housing is a bit of a bull and a beast in its own right. If you're going to be successful in that world, the reason houses are so cheap is for a reason, right? If you're going to go and do that, I would go and try and mitigate the risk over more than one property, right? And what I mean by that is so I went and bought that first deal. All my eggs were in that basket. And I was like, when the tenant moved out, when the tenant started fighting, when there was that drive-by shooting and I only had one tenant, I couldn't even, you know, I wasn't making any cash flow. So understanding Section 8 housing is you also got to understand your property management game, right? If you're going to have a property manager come in and say, okay, well, I'm going to only going to take five or six or seven percent on a thousand dollars a month in rental. Do you think they're really going to have all your attention on that one property? Probably not, right? But if you had three or four or five of them, a little portfolio of small Section Eight housing, then you mitigate the risk. If one house does bad, but the other four are doing well, you can mitigate the risk over a wider base. And so, if you are going to get started in the cheaper end of the market. Understand why would a property manager want to make sure your little portfolio is going to be taken care of? And two, how do you make sure that you're mitigating the risk over more deals? Now that you've done as many deals as you've done and you have 1,800 units, I'm sure that you've just started to do a lot bigger deals than just that small multifamily. A lot of new investors grapple with this idea of should I go big to start or should I start small? What do you think? Start small, always start small. Back to the point of like not taking on outside capital first, how you believe in that. I also believe in that. If you're going to go out and test yourself, go out and do a small deal first. You know, go out and you're not just going to go run a marathon straight away, right? You're going to train. You're going to go run two miles first and then you know work up to a marathon. So start with some more small runs on the board. So you know, we call in Australia runs, meaning you know running between the wickets for cricket. Get a few runs on the board and then start going for hitting for the fences and swinging for the fences to get those base hits and those home runs. Yeah, I agree completely. And but and the reason I ask that is because you hear a lot of people all. On the internet, or just either even other podcasts, a lot of the big names, and I won't name any specific, but I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. He always says, "Go big," you know. Yeah, go it's, as like, big it's as the possible. mindset going big, right? It's not necessarily you go and actually go big because because going big for someone could be buying their first triplex for thirty eight thousand bucks, right? That could be going big, right? But the goal might be, oh, I want to get five hundred units. My goal was to get a thousand units, so we'll surpass that. Now I'm looking to you know, double the portfolio next three to five years. So I know who you're talking about. It's more it's more about setting those big goals for the future, but maybe for that first stepping stone, get that first deal under your belt to feel the confidence to go out and do more. Yeah, I love that. It's the mindset of thinking big, which I believe in wholeheartedly, but you don't have to do a big deal. And for me, when I went long distance, like I said, the first property I bought, I did it with as little risk as possible. I bought a small single family. The mortgage was $300 a month. And I said, absolute worst case scenario, if this goes bad, I can, buy I can pay that $300 a month <laughs> exactly. if I have to, right? Yep. But if I had bought a 100-unit apartment complex, I'd be screwed. I couldn't pay for that. Right. And so I think starting small, whether it's local or long distance, I think that's a great way to start. But still having that long-term big mindset, 10x. so yeah, that 10x <laughs> mindset is so important. As we wrap up the show, let's talk about the number one piece of advice you'd give to an investor. What is a piece of advice that you hear given on other podcasts or just on the web that mm-hmm. you don't think is good advice? And how would you change that to make it good advice? I'm not going to. Don't think any advice is bad. It's it's all in the beholder who takes on the advice. But the number one piece of advice that I got growing up was from my dad, and he said, "A fool and their money are easily parted." So what does that mean? A fool means don't be uneducated. Go out and invest in your education first and foremost, in terms of whatever that might be, whether it be real estate investing or starting a business or 
getting involved in a certain career, go out and invest in your education. Surround yourself with people that are like-minded and you aspire to be because you are the average of the five people you hang around with. But also understand that it takes time. We talked about persistence in the beginning, but get a mentor. I think it's really, really important. It's education, surround yourself with like-minded people and get a mentor in order to be not that fool. Because if you are that fool, your money's going to come easy come, easy go, as they say. Reed, thanks so much for your time. I'm glad we were able to connect today at the PodMax event. Where can the audience that's listening today go connect with you, learn more about all that you got going on? You can jump over to my website at reedgoosens.com. That's R-E-E-D-G-O-O-S-S-E-N-S. There you can find the two books. They're both best-selling books on Amazon, Investing in the US and 10,000 Miles to the American Dream. You can also check out my podcast called Investing in the US. And if anyone is coming through LA, I can offer your listeners, if anyone comes through LA, I'm more than happy to meet up for lunch. Hit me up. Just let me know when you're coming. We can catch up and talk about real estate. Go to info at reedgoosens.com. Just say they heard me on your show at the PodMax event or whatever, and we can link up. I know we have a lot of listeners out in California. So if you are in the LA area, definitely take them up on that opportunity. I know a lot of people are looking for mentors, looking to connect with people who have been successful. So that's an amazing opportunity that he just gave everyone listening to the show. So definitely take advantage of that. And I'll be sure to put links to all your resources, his books, everything in the show notes. And as always, I'll put a couple other books that are related to different topics that we talked about in the show. So you guys can go read more about it there. Reed, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Robert, you are crushing it, mate. Keep it going. And I really, really enjoyed being on the show today. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.